Hey guys, last week we saw the first of Paul's six defenses that he makes as Christ's ambassador in chains. You know, pretty much from now to the end of Acts, he's in chains. He's, he's Christ's ambassador in chains. And this is the first time he's in Jerusalem. If you remember, he had gone back to Pentecost. He wanted to share at the feast there with his brothers, the Jews who weren't believers. And at this time, there were Jews from all over the world that flooded in there, including those in Asia who tried to kill him. They stirred up a riot. They stirred up uh, problems saying Paul taught against the temple. Paul taught against the law. Paul did not like the Jewish ways. He was teaching people to go against their, their way. And, and this is Paul's first defense. Because what happens is the Romans see what's going on is they're pelting and beating Paul, and they go, "Whoa, we got to have peace. We got to have. We can't be having riots here." And they were right there at the Antonio Fortress, which is overlooking the temple, and so they came down and pretty much rescued Paul. And it's interesting how God sovereignly. Now this is the third time Paul has been rescued by Romans, the pagans. The ones who live for themselves are narcissists. They're all about the flesh. And God uses these people to rescue Him now the third time. And we see Paul shares his story. And this is uh, Paul's story is told six times in Scripture. Three times in Acts, in Galatians, in Philippians, and in 1 Timothy. And... Um, our story, when we share it, and by the, by the story, I'm talking about how Paul's life changed. And so often, you know, I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I don't, I don't really have a story. Well, you don't have to be a drug dealer to have a, a testimony. You don't have to be, you know, a, a, a recovering addict or a recovering anything to have a God story. A God story simply means that there, there was a time in your life that you weren't walking with Christ and He came in and rescued you and there was a time after that where you walked with Him. And even if you came to Christ as a young child like I did, I came to Christ as a five-year-old. I came to Christ as a five-year-old I still remember it. I still remember coming forward. I still remember when it was. It was May 7th, 1967. I remember three years later going up at a VBS. I told you guys this, and I, I, I felt a call to be a preacher. To be somebody whose life would be consecrated to go around the world preaching, not knowing what it would look like. And it, it was 20-something years later that it happened. But all during that time, I was His. I never, ever thought that I wasn't His during that time. Except for one time. And that's when I was living in sin and I thought I was about to die. And at that moment, 
And quite frankly, if you're walking in disobedience, you should feel the fear. That's why he says examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. But every other time in my life, I've known I'm His. And I talk to people all the time who, when they think about their story, they don't really have a story. They don't, have, they don't think about an encounter with God. I know people that say, well, I didn't really feel anything. How do you not feel anything when you recognized that you put the Son of God on a cross who died for you? He died for you because of your sin. Not something that happened thousands of years ago. Something that happened in your life. And so what we have in our culture and around the world is a lot of times a softened gospel that makes it more about us than about Him. It, it, it was never started with us, but that's what we've done with it. And so you can have people that say, well, yeah, I prayed a prayer, but you know, I didn't really feel anything. But you didn't really understand what was going on. Because you cannot go to God as a God-forsaken, awaiting the wrath of God sinner and realize that in His mercy, He's given a way for you to be pardoned and forgiven and go, I don't really feel anything. But that's what happens. Paul was a guy who was diametrically opposed to the plan of God. He didn't know God. He thought he represented God, but he didn't even know Him. And he tells his story to these people. He's so passionate, he'll undergo anything because he realizes what he was doing. He was killing the very people that were serving the God he was supposed to be serving. And so he shares his story. Second, uh, Sir, Sir William Ramsey said that Paul's story is the second leading apologetic in all of Christian history. Only second to Jesus' resurrection. Because it's so unbelievable that the guy who was killing Christians would be the one God would use to write half the New Testament and tell people and do. Think about all Paul did. All that we've been covering for these past few weeks and even last year, all of his journey. You know, think about Paul's journeys. How many times has he been kicked out of cities? How many times has he been beaten? How many times has he uh, almost died? Why? Not for his version of God anymore, but because his life was changed. And so, last week, as we looked at the first part of his story in 22, we saw his life before Christ. He says, I was a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I am more Jew than any of you, is really what he's saying. Because nobody out in that audience probably except maybe a couple might have been under Gamaliel. Most of those people come from other places and they're going, Gamaliel? And remember, it was confusing. So he's saying this and these people are wondering, why are we beating this guy? Why are people saying he's not Jewish? Who sits under Gamaliel's feet who isn't Jewish? And so we saw his life before Christ. We also saw him get into how Jesus rescued him. He told the story. I was on the road to Damascus. 130 miles north of Jerusalem. I was going up there to arrest men and women who said they represented this way, 
the way. Because this Jesus of Nazareth said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except Me. It was a rogue religion, I thought. I'm going up there, and all of a sudden a light brighter than the sun hits me, and I'm blinded. And He's telling this to these people. And they're all listening because He's speaking in Aramaic. He's speaking their language. You know who else is listening? The Romans who were there with Him. Paul took this opportunity, and he is being a witness there which is what we're called to do. Well, that was last week. We saw his life before Christ. We saw how God rescued him. And this week, we're going to look at his life after Christ. He's going to talk about going forward. And that's really, guys, our story. That's how our story points to his story. What was our life apart from Christ? How did he rescue us? And now, what's happening afterwards? And really, I want you to see two things in our life after Christ. Our life after Christ, first of all, is a, is, is a life that serves God. It's a life of service to God. Plain and simple. He's in charge. That's the difference between people who follow Jesus and the rest of the world. When you follow Jesus, He's in charge. Okay, It's a life of service. A slave. And second, it's a life of serving others. He's on display. That's really the difference in post-Christian life, or or not post-Christian, but post-meeting Jesus' life and life before. When you meet Jesus and you know Him and He knows you, you're His slave and you're His sign. You're His slave, you serve Him, and you're His sign to others. You put God on display to the world around you. So that they come up to you, uh, Chuck, and they go, why are you so different? I saw what happened. Or why did you do this? Why are you like that, Roy? Why, why do you do those things? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you a story. I didn't used to be this way. Was there, you know, there was a time in my life where I thought it was all about me. I lived for myself. I would have never adopted five children from China on my own. I didn't even want the one child I had. But but there was a change. Can I tell you about what happened? No, I don't want to hear that. When you're, when, when I, I had a chance. I went to Dallas this past weekend. And I'm sitting in the lounge in the Atlanta airport. There's a couple across from me and they just I get down and I sit and I just go get me something to eat and I'm eating and they make a comment about what I'm eating and so I say hi. I love the people watching airports. A lot of people go in there, they just stay in their world. Got their earphones on, they don't look to people. Guys, that is one of the best places in the world to witness. These people will never see you again. <laughs> More than likely, right? This is so true, though. And, and, and so, but, but get out of your world. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, before I know it, I'm into my testimony. I'm sharing with them. And what's crazy is they're sitting about where uh, probably you are, and I'm here, and there's people all around, and I'm talking loud enough for everybody to hear. And the people around are looking. 
And I'm talking about, you know, my bird strike. I'm talking about my kids from China. I'm talking about life before, life after. And come to find out they're believers from North Carolina, and that's okay. Then we start talking. Well, guess what? Everybody's still listening. We're being a witness, which is what we're told to do. Coming back, I'm I'm going into the I'm walking down the the uh, concourse and I go into the restroom and I see this guy walk in, young guy, got a like a three month old baby in his hand in the bathroom. I look at him, I feel bad for him because he's in this nasty men's bathroom with this little baby, and I'm saying, Man, that's tough. Because you can tell he's got a bag, he's got the baby, he's trying to figure out where there's a changing station. This I didn't see one in there. And so, but he looks like a, a just a good guy trying to take care of this baby while his wife is obviously doing something else. So I said, man, you're having a tough day, aren't you? He just smiled and said, well, yeah, just trying to find a place to change the baby. And I thought, man, here's this young guy in there, got this baby. You know, is he by himself? Is he? I didn't know what his story was. But, you know, I just made a comment to him. said, well, I hope you, hope you have a, a good day. Well, I get on the plane, him and his wife are sitting next to me. <laughs> he asked me, what do you do? Unlike a, a lot of pastors or preachers won't tell people they're preachers. I tell everybody I'm a preacher. I don't care. I just want them to know up front. Hey, if I was a doctor and somebody asked, I'd tell them I'm a doctor. Why would I not tell them I'm a preacher? Amen. Right? I'm not ashamed to be a preacher of the gospel. I'm a preacher. And he goes, wow, you know, me and my wife were just talking about since we've had this baby, we need to get in church. Mm-hmm. We, we were both raised going to church. So guess what? The whole flight to Jacksonville, <coughs> just sharing with him. And, and it, there's opportunities all around us. We've got to be the people God calls us to be. We serve Him and we put Him on display to others. And so that's what Paul did. And so as we look at this today, we're going to see verses 17 through 40. Paul's life after Jesus encounters him. But before we do, last week, I do want to say this about verse 16 last week, because I was reminded about God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Listen, uh, and by the way, Harold, do you mind pulling that down? The sun's about to hit me in the eye. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Um, if you've been in church for any length of time, you hear the John Calvin Arminian argument. You hear, oh, "I believe this." Well, I believe this. Well, can I tell you, they're both right. We have responsibility, and God's sovereign. We see it in Scripture all the time. And last week, God did Paul seek God? Yes or no? No. 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 He no. didn't seek Him. He was, he was opposed to the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible sent His Son Jesus and He'd been around for a while and Paul didn't buy into it. Which means he didn't know God. That's why I can say with confidence, if a Jew doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't know God. He can't. Because once God spoke through Jesus and that is rejected, 
You cannot know the God of the Bible if you don't know His Son. And people get really upset when you say that. We don't worship the same God. Paul thought he was worshiping the one true living God, but he wasn't because he rejected his son. And I say that without apology. That, that is truth. Jesus said that. You're of your father who? He said that to Jewish people, Jewish leaders. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Okay? So, God is sovereign in Paul's life. But what did Ananias tell him in verse 16? Rise. Why do you wait? Call on the name of the Lord is the modifier. The baptism is the expression of what's going on inside. It's an outward manifestation of what's already occurring inside of Paul. But he tells him, do it. Respond. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, some people know their whole life that the Gospel is true, but they never respond to it. They know it's true. They know the story. We have to respond to His call. So, I just wanted to clear that up because a lot of people use verse 16 and they try to justify baptism as a necessity for salvation. If that was true, why would Paul say, hey, I thank God that I didn't baptize anybody? Why would he even say that? If we needed water for baptism, the thief on the cross wouldn't be with him. I mean, if we needed water for saving, the thief on the cross wouldn't be in heaven. So, now that I got that off my chest, we're good. All right. So, anyway. Yeah. Verse 17, going in uh, chapter 22. Join with me. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... Now remember, what was their charge? That he preached against the temple, he preached against the law, he preached against Judaism. When he says, now I'm a follower of the way, where does he go? And He's praying in there. He goes to the temple to pray. I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. What's Paul doing here? No, he's arguing with God. God told him to get out. And he's going, wait a minute, Lord. They'll, they'll believe it because I, I was a bad guy. I was a guy who hated the way. You guys ever argue with God? God ever tell you to do something and you sit there and you try to justify why you don't need to do that? Listen, do you believe if Jesus, God Himself in the flesh, was doing miracles and they rejected Him, that Paul's conversion is going to convert anybody? I mean, think about that. Do we, do, do we struggle that way? Do we sometimes become pragmatic 
I heard a very, very popular preacher who I'm going to name because he put this out. He's put it out before. Andy Stanley says, we don't need to say anything about the veracity of the Bible. We don't need to let our hope in sharing Christ with people be on the Bible. We need to focus on the resurrection. We need to get away from the Bible and talking to people about Jesus. Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley used to be a very faithful preacher. And 90% of what you hear him say is going to be okay. But he's become very pragmatic. And, and he said he was listening to an atheist. And when the atheist was destroying the veracity of the Bible, in his mind, listen, people have been trying to destroy this book for 2,000 years. There's nothing historically or archaeologically ever been disproved in the Bible. In fact, every archaeological discovery affirms the truth of the Bible. And he said that we need to get away from we need to untether from the Bible when we're sharing the gospel with people. We need to focus just on the resurrection. That's a bunch of garbage. That's a bunch of garbage. And he influences a lot of people. Listen, the Word of God. What does the Word say about how do people come to Christ? By what? Hearing what? The Word. Hearing the Word. That's right. Or any man. So, can we start to believe that maybe we can do something better than God does? So you see what I'm saying? Paul's arguing with God. God, listen, I'm a changed man. I can be a great witness for you. Notice what God says. But that's true though, isn't it? What? That's true, what he's thinking. Oh, yeah, it's not. It's totally true. It is true. He could be a great witness. It's just not what God wants. So God, who's in charge? So God says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should never be allowed to live. Kill him. They also wanted to kill him back in Acts chapter 9, if you remember. Do you think maybe God knew that and maybe God didn't want him to die and maybe that's why God wanted him to go? Sometimes I was telling this guy a couple of days ago, I look back on my life and I see how God has weaved all the circumstances in my life together for His glory. There were times that I would have been dead if I did what I wanted to do. And that's what would have happened with Paul. And God says, nope. Guys, don't forget that about you. I don't want to do this, God. It's not about what you want. He's in charge. He made you. He designed you. He created you for His glory. He knows how He's appointed things for you to do for Him in this life. And you're immortal. You're immortal until when? Until He calls you home. But you can be disobedient to Him and there will be consequences. And so, He told Paul to go. Verse 23, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying, 
he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by him, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Yeah, it was a great move, isn't it? Isn't that funny? That that's that's a that's a great. Hey, should you be doing this? Yeah, this. Well, because guys, you know what the penalty was when you violated a Roman's rights? Death. Now, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, "What are you doing? What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen." So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He goes, yes. The tribune answered, I brought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He had violated his rights. There was no charges that he knew against Paul. He didn't even know why he had him. He just thought he was a bad guy. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. These are the very words of God. Um... God shows us Paul's story and He shows us that this is what a life after Christ looks like. That our life after Jesus is a life of service to God. It's a, He's in charge. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and earth, in the seas and all the deep. In other words, God does what He wants to do. He's in charge of it all. And Isaiah 14, 27 says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, who's going to stop it? If if God ordains something, who's going to stop it? His hand is stretched out. Who's going to turn back His hand? He's all-powerful. And so if He says something, we're His servants. We serve Him. So, verse 17, Paul said, when I return, this was three years after his conversion, by the way. He went to Arabia. We know that from Galatians 1, verses 17 and 18. He says in Galatians, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And then I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And when he came back, when he did return, what happened? It says he was in a trance. He was praying in the temple and he was in a trance. That word trance is the Greek word ecstasis, which we get the word ecstasy from. We get ecstasy from that word and it's really kind of like a divine high. Some kind of supernatural consciousness. It's the same word, by the way, used over in Acts 10.10 when Peter, remember when Peter was praying? He went into a trance. It's this divine consciousness where you're connected with God in some supernatural way of communicating. That we don't, it's not, it's not normative. 
It's a narrative. There's a difference between a narrative and what's normative. We, most of us don't walk around in trances with God, right? We, I, I don't know that I've ever been in a trance with God. <clears throat> That'd be cool, but it hadn't happened to me. Maybe it happens to some people, but it's not a normative experience because we don't even see it normative in Paul's life or in Peter's life. But it happened here. And it says when he fell into that trance, God said, get out. You need to get out of here quickly. Why? Because God knew what was going to happen because God always knows what's going to happen. And so, the Christians were afraid of Him, by the way. If you remember back in Acts 9, when He came back, the Christians were afraid. Barnabas had to say, hey, He's okay. The Jews were alienated from Him. So it was not a good place for Paul to be right then. And he's going to suffer. He's going to get beat. He's going to get stoned. But God didn't want it to happen there at that moment. And so He says, get out. They're not going to accept your story, Paul. And so verse 19, 20, Paul argues with God. God, they're going to see a change in me. There's no way people won't believe me. I love this verse in Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Let this sink in for a minute, guys. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. I can't speak, God. I stutter. Hey, who made you, Moses? You do what I tell you to do. I know that you stutter. And I want to pick you anyway. I choose who I use, when I use, and how I use it. So, and by the way, guys, circumstances are never a good indicator of God's will. You know how people will, will use circumstances? Oh, this is what God wants, obviously. <clears throat> uh, really? How many times do we read in the Bible where the circumstances were not determinative of God's will, but it was Satan trying to prohibit God's will? I.e., um, this will never happen to you, Jesus. Peter doesn't want him to do what he's wanting to do. Just because somebody tells you something, it's kind of like the lucky dip method of Bible study. Okay, Lord, I don't know what I want to read today, so I'm going to read this. Do as he said, strike him down and bury him. Well, that's not good. What does that mean? That's from 1 Kings, right? That don't work out too well. In the same way, just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean that that's God speaking to you. How do we determine how God speaks to us in this day and age? How? Through His Word. Circumstances can be affirming but it will never take you in a place that goes against His Word. And we have to be careful because there's a lot of writing out there now that is just gobbled up by Christian bookstores where people are hearing, you know, they're hearing experientially from God. Might just be the burrito you had last night. 
Might not be God speaking to you at all. So, verse 21, God says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Paul says, God sent him to the Gentiles. Get that. God sent him to the Gentiles. It's a brilliant defense. He's saying, I didn't choose this. I was going diametrically opposed to this and the God of our fathers, remember he used that phrase? That's a Jewish phrase. He's saying, our God came into my life and made me go this way. I was blinded, guys. You ever been blinded? The God of the universe blinded me because I was going in the wrong direction. And by the way, blindness was always a symbol of being in darkness to God. Being in sin. And so, verse 22. Well, so all that to say, his life after Jesus now, he says, I'm a slave. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. He's in charge. That's ultimately what he's saying right here. In, in verses you know, 17 through the 20. You recommended the gospel according to Jesus. Yeah. That first chapter about slave yeah. and, and <clears throat> servant and the difference, man, it's, it really brought it out to the point. Well, it's a big difference. Huge. And by the way, guys, there's two types of slave mentioned. One slave is a slave who serves out of a forced labor. But there's another slave that serves out of a reward base slavery. And we're that kind of slave. We serve. Remember what he told Peter? Peter says, Lord, we've left everything for you. You're going to be blessed, he says. You're going to be blessed. So our life after Christ should be, our story should be that, hey, we're his slave. We're not in charge of our life anymore. I, I, I think I told you guys, I'm, I'm involved with something right now, and I was meeting with some people that didn't want that to happen. And I just looked them in the eye and I said, listen, I don't care if the whole city comes against me on this, because I believe this is what God wants me to do. He has not given me the freedom to walk away from it. And I will do everything within my power to do what I think He wants me to do. You need to understand that about me. I don't care about people and their desire for me or not. If I think God wants me to do something, I'll run through the wall if that's what He wants me to do. So you need to understand my resolve on this. And I think we all need that resolve. Wouldn't it be great if the church really thought Whatever God wants, that's what I want to do in every situation. Instead of, nah, you know what? That doesn't fit with my schedule. Nah, you know, I had this plan for this money over here. Nah, you know, I, yeah, I'd love to go do that, Pastor, but um, you know what? That weekend, I'm going away. See, we don't even stop to pray about those things because we've got our schedule. Who makes our schedule? If we're His. If we're His slave, we're His slave. And sometimes He calls us to do things that go against our scheduling. See, we grow up in a country that says we get to choose how we do everything. That's the beauty of America. We're independent. But not God's people. God's people are His. 
That is the first and foremost allegiance that we should have to anything. And so if we feel God calling us to do something, we need to do that. And that's what Paul lays out here in verses 17 through 21. Well, it's also a life of service to others. He's on display. We put him on display. Verse 22, it says, Up to this word, they listened, but then they said, Away with him, kill him. And they were throwing off their clothes. Why do you think they were throwing off their clothes? Give him a stone. Yep, that's exactly right. They were getting ready to stone him. They said, Kill him. And when the way they killed him, the way that, remember, Rome had given them the ability to kill people that violated the temple law when they went into the Holy of Holies, or if they violated certain Jewish laws, blasphemy being one of them. Rome kind of gave that as an appeasement to the Jewish people. And so they're flinging their coats off, man. They're getting ready to throw them, and there's no rocks there, so they just grabbed dirt clods, basically. So they're flinging dust up in the air. No, it didn't work. Verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into barracks and examined by flogging. Guys, this was tortured interrogation. He wanted to find out what was going on. And the flogging he used was a flagellum. A flagellum was a piece of wood that had leather strips and either bone or metal on it. And literally, it would, it's scourging. And they would beat you and you would either die or be crippled for the rest of your life usually with it. And it was so heinous that women and members of the Roman Senate couldn't even have it done to them. And only Romans who had been condemned could have it done to them. But you couldn't use it with a Roman citizen to interrogate. In other words, if there's no condemnation, that's why Paul says, wait, what are you doing? I'm a Roman citizen. And by the way, was Paul opposed to suffering for Jesus? No. He'd suffered for him before, right? So I don't think this was about Paul. I don't believe it was about Paul. What would happen to that tribune and everybody that was involved if they did that to Paul? They would die. They would die. Remember, these Roman guys were not being... uh, It doesn't appear that they were... They let him speak. Think about that for a second. Why would they let him speak? Usually Romans could have cared less about the Jewish people. They didn't know what was going on. They're trying to find out what's going on. If they beat him, they die. Already they bound him. Even by binding him, they could die because they've taken away his rights and he hasn't been charged with anything. And so Paul speaks up and he says, hey, is it legal to do this? And when he says that, that centurion, not the Chiliarch, the tribune, but the centurion said, what are you doing? Because he knew what, what could happen. And he said, and, and, and the reason I think what I think is because Paul says, hey, I was born a citizen. That made him a first class citizen. The Tribune said, I bought my citizenship, which means he, the only way you bought it was by bribery. Yep. And so, 
they bound him. They stretched him out. They, they would stretch him so the back was taut so that when they hit, it would just rip it open. And he goes, is this lawful? Anyone who violates a Roman's rights, anyone who violates a Roman's rights could be executed. So, Paul didn't mind suffering for Christ, but he probably saved the life of the tribune. And you know when I read this, this popped into my mind. Matthew 5.43 You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and the good and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only our brothers, what more are you doing? Guys, you've got to remember, Paul and the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, hated the Romans. They viewed them as enemies of God. Nothing would have made the Jewish leaders more happy if Rome would have just been wiped out. And yet, Paul stops this guy and says, hey, what are you doing? He didn't mind suffering, but Paul says, I wouldn't do this. <laughs> um, and what did the, the Tribune do? They left. Him, it says they left. They were afraid. They took him and they left. And it was the next day he brought him to the religious leaders to figure out, okay, we're going to get him back in front of the Jews and figure out what is going on. Let them deal with it. We, we almost died today uh, doing this. So, let me just give you a quick summary of Paul's testimony and, and what God calls you and me to do. First, trust in His plan. Always trust in His plan. We don't know what it is. It's unfolding. Right, Chuck? But we trust in His plan. Second, always look for opportunities to share. Even in the midst of what he was dealing with, Paul was looking for a way to share with people. Hey, do you mind if I say something to him? And they let him. You never know. Third, always look for bridges to your audience. Don't come in and just preach Adam, but look for ways to connect with them. And that's what Paul did. We see that. Fourth, always point to Jesus. Not God. Jesus is God. But Jesus is the only way people are going to know God. And, and we, you know, you, you talk about God in a general sense, and people are okay. When you mention Jesus, hair is on the back of their neck, stand up. Yeah. And then, fifth, let gratitude for God and love for others be your motivation to share. Gratitude to God for what He's done in your own life and love for others be. So, going back to the question I asked last week, am I prepared to give a hope, a defense for the hope that's in me? Do I even have hope? What was my life like before Jesus? How did He rescue me? How is He leading me now? What's He doing? Am I obeying Him? Am I disregarding Him? Take time to reflect on those. Take time to reflect. Um,